Welcome to the Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates Inside Science Series. I'm Paul Vogelsang, and this is episode number 349. As part of our Smithsonian Associates Inside Science and Technology Series, we are joined today by author, scientist, and former president of Massachusetts Institute of Technology, Dr. Susan Hockfield. Dr. Hockfield will be appearing at the Smithsonian Associates program May 6, 2019, and her presentation is entitled, Bioengineering the Next Technology Revolution. Small aside, regarding the next technology revolution, specifically about music, we are listening to an artificial intelligence piece of music from composer Andrew Wong. Andrew makes a lot of great music in a recent collaboration with the Google team known as Magenta, whose focus is how to create art and music with machine learning yielded this great piece. It's really cool stuff. I think it just works here. Dr. Susan Hockfield, our guest today, will talk about being on the cusp of a new convergence with discoveries in biology coming together with engineering to produce another array of almost inconceivable technologies. These next generation products have the potential to be every bit as revolutionary as the 20th century's digital wonders. Virus-built batteries, protein-based water filters, cancer-detecting nanoparticles, mind-reading bionic limbs, and computer-engineered crops, to name just a few. And we'll hear about Dr. Hockfield's own insatiable desire to see how things work and how she's put that into practice in science and technology. I have always had an insatiable desire to understand how things work. And I've always satisfied that curiosity by taking things apart. I dissected all kinds of objects, even as a young child, long before I knew I wanted to be a scientist. My curiosity drove me to reduce things down to their component parts and to learn how those parts come together to give the objects their function. Emboldened by watching my father fix seemingly anything in our home, I disassembled my mother's iron and her vacuum cleaner. I opened up my favorite watch to examine its mainspring and minute gears only to have the unwinding mainspring explode the watch out of my hands, scattering into dozens of irretrievable parts. I took my curiosity outdoors too. I dissected daffodils in our garden and acorns that had just put forth the first sprigs of new oak trees. How an iron worked became apparent to me after I took one apart, but how daffodils bloomed and oak trees germinated did not. How did a daffodil's brilliantly yellow petals emerge from a green bud? Why were the petals yellow instead of red? What was it inside an acorn that suddenly prompted a sprig to grow? The mysteries of living things captivated me from the very beginning. What were their mainsprings and gears? This childhood passion for taking things apart turned into my life's work. As I came of age as a scientist, I was fortunate to grow up in the midst of two major biological revolutions. The first, molecular biology, revealed the basic building blocks of all living organisms. The second, genomics, gave molecular biology the scale necessary to identify the genes responsible for diseases and trace them across populations and species. That, of course, is our guest today, best-selling author, former president of MIT, Dr. Susan Hockfield. Dr. Hockfield was reading from her new book, 
the age of living machines, how biology will build the next technology revolution. You can see Dr. Hockfield at the Smithsonian Associates Program presenting Bioengineering, the Next Technology Revolution, May 6, 2019. Please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show via internet phone, author, scientist, educator, Dr. Susan Hockfield. Dr. Susan Hockfield, I am excited to talk to you, but welcome to the show. Thanks so much. It's a real pleasure to be with you. It is a pleasure to talk to you. You really have such a great career, a great personal history. I'm looking forward to getting into all of that. But tell us briefly about your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation. Um, I had the privilege of enjoying the perspective from the MIT president's office of looking out over the frontier of discovery and technology development. And I can tell you every time I had a conversation with a faculty member or a student or a staff member and asked them what they were working on and they began to explain it, I found myself in a future I could not have imagined. One of the major themes that arose again and again was how many of them were using tools from biology to serve some of our most difficult problems. Kim to call this the convergence of biology with engineering. So using biological parts and processes, these pioneers are engineering new technologies. And in my own mind, I came to understand this is really quite analogous to the technology shift that created the digital world we enjoy today. I would say the major technology transformation of the 20th century. And as I trace that back historically, the digital world we enjoy today is a product, of course, of the computer and information industries, but those industries are products of the electronics industry. The electronics industry arose from physicists around 1900 coming to understand the parts list of the physical world. So if we think about is that, that as convergence 1.0, the convergence of the physics parts list with engineering, what I came to see from talking to my colleagues at MIT is that the technology of the 21st century, the 21st century technology story is gonna be written out of the parts list of biology being picked up by engineers into new kinds of technologies, convergence 2.0, if you will. We're facing a global population that's predicted to rise to over 9.5 billion by 2050. And we face some really daunting challenges. We're gonna need new technologies to sustainably provide the energy, food, water, health, and healthcare for this growing population. And we can only hope that this growing population will be increasingly prosperous. And where are those technologies gonna come from? Of course, we'll draw on the technologies of the past. But what I see going forward is the technologies of the future will have this fascinating feature of being built with biology and not just built with physics. I have to say, I like this story, as you suggest. I, it, it seems to make sense to me, but I guess on a very basic level, what do biology and engineering have in common? <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> and truth be told, you know, there's a little bit in common, but um, not a whole lot. There are new disciplines of biological engineering, biomedical engineering, bioengineering, and those newish disciplines 
use the components of biology to engineer new technologies or use engineering perspectives to understand biology. And this is a world that's been coming along at some pace uh, for, you know, certainly since the middle of the 20th century. The book, uh, in my book, I illustrate just a few examples uh, so that people begin to understand this as a theme. So, for example, batteries right now are built out of physical parts, chemical parts. But one of the individuals I highlight in the book is a woman named Angela Belcher, who's on the faculty at MIT, and she's using viruses to build batteries. Now, that sounds like science fiction, but I can tell you, I've seen these batteries. I've seen these batteries work. They're actually packaged in those uh, little uh, coin cells that you would use to replace the battery in any one of your small electronic devices. So they look like our batteries. Mm -hmm. But inside, you know, rather than Intel inside, there's biology inside. The batteries that uh, Professor Belcher builds are built at room temperature and without any toxic byproducts. This is a huge advance over current battery manufacturing technology, uh, which is conducted enormous heat and uh, has a lot of toxic uh, side products. Now, the reason this is important is that we are very focused, you know, as a nation, as a culture, on moving to the next generation of energy provision. We understand that using fossil fuels the way we have to provide all of our energy needs is a non-sustainable solution. Um, and so we dream of alternative energy solutions. Solar, wind, we love those. But the problem with solar and wind is that sometimes the sun doesn't shine. Sometimes the wind doesn't blow. And these intermittent energy sources will only be viable as really main, mainline energy provisions if we figure out a way to store that energy. There's more than enough sunshine to power the world. It's just at nighttime, we can't access it efficiently. So we have to get better at energy storage. If we don't solve this, we're not gonna be able to get out of fossil fuels. So um, that's just one example of this kind of, uh, of convergence of biology with engineering. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the convergence in biology and engineering, will the biggest impact come from climate, from maybe climate change and uh, wind and solar? Is that where you really see this making the, the biggest impact and difference? Well, one of the more amazing things about this convergence is it has the possibility, the real possibility of impacting all kinds of technologies. Of course, I have um, great dreams, great hopes for a transformation of our global energy equation to move to something more sustainable. <clears throat> but the challenge of over 9.5 billion people will put incredible pressure on our ability to get enough fresh water our ability to get enough food. If we want this population to live happily and well, we're gonna to have to get a lot better at keeping people healthy and curing them when they get sick. And in my mind, I think we also have to do much better in providing technology to help those who are uh, not equipped as everyone else is. People are disabled in one way or another. All of these various challenges potentially will have, have solutions that come out of the convergence with biology and engineering. Let me give you just one more example that I find fantastically fun. Mm -hmm, please. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Water, purification of water has been a problem since the beginning of human history, at least. There are drawings that show uh, water filtration and distillation, you know, 
1500 years BC. And I'm sure the challenge goes back uh, further even than that. So um, you might ask, well, how does nature do it? And entirely by accident, it's a marvelous story. A physician scientist named Peter Agre at Johns Hopkins University was working to identify an unusual red blood cell protein. It's the protein that in the past caused, that causes RH disease, which we can now control. And um, Dr. Agre wanted to understand that protein better. And he went through an elaborate purification strategy and came up with a purified protein that ended up not to be the protein he wanted. And he couldn't figure out what it was. Now, people who study uh, cell membranes have been looking for decades for a channel that would allow water to go into and out of cells. They couldn't find it. So they, res they decided, well, it must just go through by diffusion. They gave up. And it ended up that what Dr. Agre had purified was not the RH protein, but the water channel <laughs> had been long sought, but never found completely by accident. I admire his courage in pursuing an unknown protein when the protein of his desire <laughs> remained elusive. That takes a huge amount of courage as a scientist. In any case, so the water channel he named aquaporin, and it's a channel that's present in cells, you know, plants, animals, bacteria, it has different variants, but most of the variants allow only water to pass. It is a highly specific filter for water. So he characterized it, he published a lot of papers, and a biophysicist saw the description, the physical description of the water channel and had this interesting idea. If cells filter water using this protein, could we not use it as a water filter? So uh, a biophysicist entrepreneur named P Peter Holm Jensen uh, has developed a company. He is the uh, founder and CEO of a company called Aquaporin AS. It's outside Copenhagen. I visited the company and they are producing aquaporin protein much the way biopharmaceuticals are produced today and embedding it into artificial membranes and have made water filters. There are water filters now in homes in Asia built from aquaporin. So that's just another example of using the parts list of biology, the aquaporin protein in a physical structure, a water filtration membrane to provide more efficient, more effective water purification than we're currently able to do today. We are with Dr. Susan Hockfield, a neuroscientist. Dr. Hockfield is the former president of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology Dr. Hockfield will be presenting Bioengineering the Next Technology Revolution at the Smithsonian Associates Program May 6th. Coming up here very, very soon, Dr. Hockfield, we're, we're grateful for your time today. And your presentation, of course, will be drawing on your new book, The Age of Living Machines, How Biology Will Build the Next Technology Revolution. And I, I'm just fascinated by this subject, Dr. Hockfield, and I appreciate all the examples. I guess I was struck as, as we were talking just now, aren't maybe some of these solutions present now? Mm, it's a great question. So it's a question of how fast are we going to race to the future? How fast will we be able to race to the future? Mm -hmm. The um, small set of technologies that I describe in the book as examples, they're new, 
They're currently under development, but I anticipate that we're going to be seeing more and more of these convergence technologies in areas I can't even imagine. The CEO and founder of Aquapor and AS had a brilliant, brilliant way of uh, describing this. We were talking about the complexity of the water channel, the complexity of its structure that nature has engineered, if you will. And he said, you know, we could just, you know, break our brains trying to figure out how to purify water, which, by the way, we've been doing for several thousand years. He said, but why don't we just use nature's genius as kind of a shortcut? Nature has solved the problem. We'll just use it the way she designed it. And in my mind, that's kind of the theme of the book, nature's genius, that deploying nature's genius to solve our problems. And Angie Belcher uh, was just uh, has a, a perspective on this that I find absolutely inspiring. She was quite taken by the abalone shells that she found along the beach when she was in uh, graduate school at UC Santa Barbara. And what captivated her was not just the beauty of the structure, but the fact that abalone assemble these incredible shells. They're strong, they're lightweight. They're assembled simply from the components of the abalone's environment, simple components in seawater. The abalone picks them up and turns them into this magnificent shell. When the abalone dies, that shell doesn't contaminate things. It disintegrates into its component parts and provides the component parts for the next abalone or the next sea creature to build something from. And she thought, you know, if, if nature can do this, why can't we? If the abalone can build a shell that doesn't dump toxic byproducts into the ocean and uses simply the elements at hand, why can't we? And she resolved that she was going to figure out how to get evolution to happen faster, in a way, in her laboratory, to develop the kinds of technologies, let's just say like an abalone shell, but for our use. And that's the inspiration behind her virus-built batteries. Let the viruses assemble batteries, much in the way that an abalone assembles its shell. And let's figure out how to do it in a way that is more sustainable, that uses uh, materials that we can make available and then uh, does not uh, contaminate its environment in doing so. I have to tell you, I'm very much a glass half full kind of person, and I know I know our audience is as well. I get the sense that, that you are as well, but maybe tell us how optimistic are you that this revolution will take place and that our world is going to be able to meet some of these challenges that we're facing with water and with illness and uh, power and the climate? Um, so I'm with you. I'm the glass is half full or full or overflowing. And uh, <laughs> however, uh, I have no doubt that these technologies will happen. I just have no doubt. It is a, a one of the reasons I've written the book is so that people can understand. The book is for a general audience. It's not written for scientists or engineers. But the point is that this is a theme that we're seeing again and again. And it's very hard to keep in your mind, you know, what's the relationship between virus-built batteries and aquaporin-based water filters. I mean, these are, seems like two completely separate worlds. But if you understand this theme of the convergence of biology with engineering, you will be able to understand many new technologies that you read about. So I think it's going to happen. It's happening, you know, all over the world. But like other technology revolutions, the foundations of this revolution are built 
with federal research dollars. And in the United States, we have understood and practiced this wonderful sequence of economic jobs, industry building. The federal government invests generously in fundamental research. And that fundamental research, once the elements are elucidated, is picked up by individuals that can turn those products into something for the marketplace. So I think these technologies will become uh, embedded into our world the way the digital uh, technologies are embedded in our world. The question in my mind is what role will the United States play in getting to that future? So I'm, um, I'm very concerned about the role the United States will play in developing this next cycle of an innovation economy. Other countries are investing more and are eager to take on leadership and they're developing new products for the marketplace. It's an exciting time. These technologies will be with us. The question is, will we be building them here or will we be buying them from someplace else? Dr. Susan Hockfield, neuroscientist, I want to mention the title of the book again. It's The Age of Living Machines, How Biology Will Build the Next Technology Revolution. A final question for you, Dr. Hockfield. Uh, women often seem sidelined with respect to playing a, a greater role in science. Uh, you are, of course, an exception, but are we making strides to bring more women into science? And, and tell us a little bit about how that's working. Well, you're absolutely right to call out this problem, and I think it's a very serious problem. Uh, this kind of effort requires all able and willing participants to be part of it, and we do ourselves a terrible disservice to count people out simply because of you know their gender or their race. And truth be told, in fields of science and engineering, as in many other fields, uh, women and minorities have not been uh, allowed to be central players. So we've made progress, a lot of progress, but there's much still to be done. There are now more women studying science and engineering in our universities and colleges. And um, those educational institutions have focused lots of attention on increasing women's participation in these critically important fields. But there are barriers of all sorts that still exist. There are still disparities in salary and support, and there are a variety of more subtle discounts. There was a recent National Academies report that tackles the invidious damage done to women's careers by sexual harassment. And one of the products of that report is some real action on the part of the National Science Foundation and the National Institute of Health about uh, sanctioning people who have been found uh, uh, to be perpetrators of sexual harassment. Mm -hmm. um, there are many professional societies that are also uh, taking this very seriously. I was chairman of the American Association for the Advancement of Science over the previous year and last fall, we convened a very large group of professional societies to help develop policies to address these issues with a theory that if we all speak in one voice, that voice will be heard. If we speak individually, we're likely to have less impact. So um, I think we're at a moment where we might accelerate change, but there's a lot of change that's still needed. Now, happily, far more women today are pursuing science, engineering, math, in the physical sciences than when I entered the field 
but the playing field still needs more leveling before opportunities for women are going to be equivalent to the opportunities that are open to their male colleagues. You know, we need everyone who has a passion for discovery, invention, and innovation to be able to contribute their best ideas and their devoted work to make all these possibilities real solutions to making our world a better, more livable, more sustainable place. And um, I think the time is right to include all those who are eager and able uh, to participate, to allow them to participate with their full effort. Dr. Susan Hockfield, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, You're so generous. And I have to tell you, I admire your courage in, in science and all that you are doing uh, to extend the future of bioengineering as it relates to healthcare and clean energy and robotics, all of these things. We'll hear more from you on uh, May 6th at the Smithsonian Associates presentation. But gosh, I, I so appreciate your time today, Dr. Hogfield. Well, thank you so much for allowing us to have this fantastic conversation. Fantastic indeed. Thanks, Dr. Hogfield, again. Thank you. Thanks to Dr. Susan Hockfield at the Smithsonian Associates Program presenting Bioengineering, the New Technology Revolution, May 6, 2019, at the Ripley Center in Washington, D.C. Dr. Hockfield's new book, The Age of Living Machines, is available for sale and signing, and there are more details available at our website. Thanks to the wonderful Smithsonian team for all they do to support the show, and thanks to you, our equally wonderful Not Old Better Show audience. Remember, talk about better. The Not Old Better Show. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.